Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. In this episode, guest host Katie Taborda Witt talks with Professor Stephen Ellingson about his new book, To Care for Creation. In it, Professor Ellingson looks at the emergence of the religious environmental movement in the United States. Based on interviews with over 60 organizations, he tells the story of how environmental activists overcome the institutional and cultural barriers that have typically prevented religious organizations from investing in environmentalism. Hi, welcome to TSP Office Hours. This is Katie Taborda-Witt, and I'm joined today with Stephen Allianson to discuss his new book, To Care for Creation, The Emergence of the Religious Environmental Movement. So welcome to Office Hours, Steve. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start off by talking about, so in the book, you introduce how religious environmentalism is fairly new, um, which is interesting because secular environmentalism has been around for decades. Right, right. So I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about why it was previously just a secular movement. So accident of history, <laughs> like many things. So the environmental movement gets up and running. The contemporary environmental movement gets started late 60s, early 70s. Right. The uh, first Earth Day is 1970, 71. Um and at the same time as the environmental movement's coming up, um, it's the end of the wave of 60s social movement mobilization and, and protest. Mm-hmm. Um, mainline and liberal Protestantism had been, and Catholicism had been very active. And there was a certain amount of weariness, which at the same time you have the the first decade of the now uh, kind of continuous decline within the mainline and Protestant um, denominations of membership loss. Um, Mm. And so part of this was we, our members are saying, quit doing all this political stuff. (laughs) And so I think there was a backing away from the religion side. Um, So that was one, that's kind of like the big macro social movement field kind of uh, I think, um, reason why they weren't involved. Um, it was also the problem that they still face is that the environment is not a religious issue in general for most world religions. Um, and so you, what you, it has, there's no people in it. <laughs> At least as it's configured, in the, especially in the early decades, where you're trying to like save wildlife, save wild places, uh, clean air, clean water, um, and I think because religion has this kind of kind of an an ethic in which you're supposed to be taking care of the least well off, the poor, the homeless, the orphan, the widowed, um, it was it was a harder sell to try to figure out well what does religion have to do with the environment. And there are very, very few clear biblical or textual warrants to be engaged in the environment. It's not like, you know, there's a a gazillion and one, that's really not a technical term, by the way, Um, um, lots of warrants to take care of the poor um, in, say, the Old Testament and New Testament, not so much for the environment. And so I think the religious 
groups early on struggle to try to figure out how do we justify being involved. Um, so those are, the, I think, the, the two main. Then, then the third thing that happens is that the environmental movement gets labeled um, as secular, as liberal, as pagan, um, kind of antithetical to religion. Uh, there also probably wasn't uh, much work done on the environmental side to recruit and mobilize religious people. Um, they really have seen each other as distinct groups. Um, Lynn White wrote this essay um, years and years and years ago um, about um, dominion theology. Uh, that is uh, a theology that's rose out of the Judeo-Christian tradition that basically draws on um, the book of Genesis in which uh, once Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden, they are charged with tilling and keeping the garden, so to speak. Um, um, and they are in put in charge of the world, right? They got to grow their own crops, they're in charge of the animals. So there's this kind of a sense of the natural world is supposed to serve the purposes of human beings. Um, and that's not how the environmentalists saw the saw the relationship. So you have kind of, you have kind of organizational, you have ideological, um, and you have some of, in some ways kind of um, strong audience demand uh, not to be involved. And I think that all worked against um, religion. In fact, when I started the project years ago, 06, 07, I was reading all these environmental histories and religion didn't even show up in the index. There was just no mention of, in, of religion. I think Greenpeace was started by some Quakers, but otherwise there just was very, very little um, interaction between religious groups and the environmental movement organizations. So how did they start, and by they I mean the environmental activists, how did they start appealing to these religious audiences? Well, what you have are a, a number of um, clergy, um, activists, lay people who may have um, been working for environmental organizations before starting their own religious-based environmental group. Um, a number of them had, oh, conversion or epiphany kinds of experiences. Um, so that the, the, there's no one easy pathway. Um, within, especially mainline Protestantism, one of the things that's happened is that as membership has declined, resources have dried up organizationally and so as the national denominations kind of start cutting staff and programs, the environment was, um, if there was even an environmental program, that was one of the easier things to cut. And so one of the things that happens in the 90s and 2000s is that religious people who are interested in the environment and want to work within their religious tradition aren't finding many resources or even interest. Um, and so they begin to strike out on their own, um, largely because they're very, very committed. Um, really, it's the one of the early chapters I, I go through and kind of identify some of the, the different ways in which people um, kind of emerged um, or kind of what were the catalysts. And a lot of it has to do with um, 
people engaged in deep study of their tradition, um, having experiences in the natural world, um, small little disasters, uh, oil spills in Puget Sound, um, damaged watersheds, those kinds of things, um, often coupled with kind of past experience. I know one guy was an environmental science major um, in college. Um, a few actually worked for secular organizations. Um, so there, there was no one easy pathway into it. Um, largely um, a concern that the major issues facing the world were going to be environmental in the coming decades and that regions had been stunningly silent. And when you think about climate change, and the climate change is the major issue that most of the organizations focus on, is that the very the poorest populations of the world are going to be most adversely affected. Um, and so that's where the entree is for the religious people who are char who believe they're charged ethically and religiously to take care of the impoverished. Um, that's where the entree is. So they can all of a sudden now they can say we have to solve climate change in order to be sure that we're fulfilling our religious responsibilities or religious. Okay. So this is assuming that this is uh, religious folks who believe in climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's one of the things I kept thinking about in reading this is how how climate change has become both so political and religiously, you know, I don't know, controversial, I guess, is a is a fair way of putting it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit more about how, you know, if there was any climate change denying, if this was a challenge to navigate or, you know, if people were pretty open to accepting it and working with it. Well, you know, I'm talking to the true believer. So, uh, so most of these, um, about the vast majority of the groups are either interfaith, multiple religious or traditions, or ecumenical, it's kind of pan-Christian, -Christ, pan pan-Protestant. Um, and they tend to be on the moderate to liberal side of things. So that um, so their audiences are probably much more amenable, where we would see the real challenges um, were first with uh, evangelical Protestants or conservative Protestants. Um, and there, one of the things that really fascinating things that came out, and I think you'll see some other stuff um, in the sociology of religion about younger evangelicals, is that there's a real generational split. So kind of evangelicals under age 40 aren't adopting the same kind of kind of cultural politics that their parents and grandparents, the moral majority. Um, so they were kind of moving away from cultural of life issues, prayer in public school, uh, evolution, and much more interested in uh, more social justice issues. Uh, um, and so, um, so, it's, so some of the evangelical groups struggle to kind of persuade their audiences um, that the environment, let alone climate change, was a religious issue. And one of the ways, in fact, um, it was the Evangelical Environmental Network uh, executive officer who, who told me that one of the things they had to do was um, 
ex- connect the environment to the culture of life. Um, so it, it, they had a campaign about mercury poisoning and you know cleaning up uh, fresh water, um, especially um, in the U.S. around uh, to uh, eliminate like PCBs and and mercury. And he um, said, well, we basically talk about how we're saving unborn babies. Um, so you kind of like you, you um, it's like a frame extension, right? You, you take the environmental thing and you kind of rework it so that it makes it sounds like, well, I'm just doing my part to save, uh, um, you know, the unborn. The other thing is it, it's the connection to uh, the impoverished, the poor. Um, that was a, the entree in for kind of more liberal and, and evangelical, uh, more liberal and, and moderate Protestants. Um, it just isn't it that population just isn't as hard to to um, to persuade. The problem for re- most religious organizations is that religions are multi-purpose organizations, and they have a long list of things that they're trying to do: um, homelessness, poverty, feeding programs. Um, therapeutic programs, and like one of the denominational officers told me that the environment is about fifth on their list of things to to address, and five is way, way, way down there, um, way below. So, to trying to prioritize the environment over other issues is the, is a bigger struggle. So how are they mobilizing people then? So it seems like um, at least the people you're talking about were already a little more liberal, maybe a little more open-minded to hearing about environmentalism uh, and these connections. So what did that mean as far as mobilizing them from not just accepting it, but to do something about it? Well, low-hanging fruit. <laughs> a number of, like, a, not quite a few of my interviewees would talk about, well, we got the low-hanging fruit now. Um so one of the ways is that some of the groups will um, provide resources for congregations to establish like a green team or a environmental justice committee within a congregation. Um, and that will be um, like studies, textual studies, uh, connecting it to the tradition, they'll provide worship materials. Um, most so most of the work is really consciousness raising and, and education. Uh, most part, um, they're all they're either 501c3 or affiliated with a 501c3 uh, organization, and so they they're limited to how much direct political action they can do, just by the tax code. Um, and so most of them, they actually one of the things that's different about them is that they tend not to engage in some of the traditional. Um, techniques that uh, secular environmental movement organizations do. Um, they don't do much lobbying. They don't much, hardly ever do litigation. Um, you don't engage in legislation, right? They're really, the focus is on helping people see how being environmental is in, is part and parcel of being an authentic or fully realized Catholic, Jew, Hindu, Buddhist, Baha'i person, right? So okay. it's really... Kind of in order to understand how to be authentically religious, you also have to be environmentally aware and active. And it's also kind of baby steps, local little easy things to do. Um, recycling in the church. Um, 
joining a CSA or working with like you know, there's a group in Oregon that that um, partners with uh, local farmers to create um, CSAs um, that are embedded are connected to a particular congregation. So members of a congregation will be members of a CSA. Um, so it's it's those kinds of things. There are very, very few, there were only a handful of national organizations in the study. Um, and most of those worked around energy issues and climate change. Um, but most of them, you know, I could only think of a handful of, of um Kind of traditional protest activities, marches, uh, climate change, you know, kind of climate change awareness marches. Um, there's a, some groups will do some um, experiential education as a way of mobilizing people. Um, a group called Green Faith would do um, basically eco disaster tours. Um, they would, you know, mobilize or get a religious audience and then they will take them and do a tour of like toxic waste sites, brownfields in New Jersey. Um, and say, oh, this is how, you know, here's the situation. Um, here's how it ha happened. Here's how we got here. Here's the th kinds of things we can do to change. And now here's some resources and here's some help for you as a religious body that you could get involved. And that might mean everything from, you know, a letter writing campaign to, um, working with a local group to um, help clean up some polluted site. So it's a, um, I don't know, am I answering your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking also as you were listing some of the activities, um, the number of churches now that I see affiliated with uh, like community gardens, yeah. uh, for example, or like having their own gardening or, you know, kind of youth education through that. That's actually a pretty new. I think the 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 food thing is a relatively newer phenomenon. Post my when I finished finished data collection oh nine. Oh okay. Wasn't much going on with that. Um, most of it had to do with um, recycling, um, energy consumption. So the, the probably the biggest group was called Interfaith Power and Light, which is a chapter based organization. Um, the national organizations in San Francisco, and then they have state chapters. And much of that is almost like a green consumerism approach where you're, you are um, ways of, you can go onto the, the state chapter website and order uh, like fluorescent light bulbs or you know energy efficient light bulbs. Um, you can contact them and they'll do help you find someone to do an energy audit of your religious building. Um, and then find ways to um, you know, change the heating system, add uh, solar power, those kinds of things. You know, these are really, really tiny organizations. You know, um, some of them are literally all volunteer. You got maybe an executive director and one staff person. Most have budgets you know, like thirty, forty thousand dollars a year. Um, you know, they're really limited in what they can do. Right. So, so, and a lot of them are relatively isolated. I don't know. I repeatedly would be talking to someone in an interview and, and I'd say, well, have you, you know, so-and-so? And they go, who? I've never heard of that other group. And you send me information, right? So that, so that you're, you know, there's one group in New York State. 
That's it. Okay. So this isn't like a huge, you know, centrally organized. Oh, no. This is a really diffuse um, movement. Uh, The organizations pop up. Um, Some of them have short lifespans. There are little networks. Um, And so there is kind of like the Interfaith Power and Light. They're all relatively connected. They have annual meetings where they all show up. Um, They talk to each other. They do joint programming together. Um, but there's a group of kind of mainline and liberal ecumenical interfaith groups, um, about eight or 10 of them that would meet periodically and like basically exchange ideas. Um, it hadn't even gotten to the point of actually doing anything together, you know, like joint action. Um, so you know, they're carving out really tiny areas, often like state region, a watershed, a river system, um, a city, and working, you know, within, you know, the bound, those kind of geographic boundaries. Um, so, so that, you know, it's, it's a, it's just like when I captured them at a very, very, at the, at the emergence of the movement where, you're still, they're having to figure out how do I even talk about this in ways that won't offend <laughs> all the religious people who think, right, because of the, the strong um, connection between environmentalism and liberalism. Yeah, I was actually, I was wondering if you could say a little about that, about why why you think environmentalism just continues to have these negative connotations for so many people. Yeah, I wish I knew. I, I guess I should have talked to the the secular environmentalists about that. Um, you've got their spiritual. I mean, there's a lot of spirituality within the secular environmental movement. Um, a guy named Bron Taylor down at Florida um, uh, has written about. I think he calls it dark green religion. Dark green religion. Um, but it's not recognized as religious by religious people. There's no, there's not necessarily a, um, a deity. <laughs> you know, there's no God. Um, there are also problems with treating nature and human beings, the natural world and human beings as equals. Um, so that it kind of goes against the grain of a lot of, especially Christianity. And so there's a real tension of, I don't want to like biocentrism is just almost like you can't do that. Um, I, I mean, some of the Catholics were, uh, were kind of very felt like they're walking on eggshells sometimes, so that they wouldn't um, get in trouble theologically with the you know within the Catholic Church. Um, right. So even though the Pope is issuing kind of pro-environmental statements and kind of um, talking about climate change, um, but I think there's just this association between that the environmental movement is secular, that they're 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 opposed to religion, they're actually anti-religious, right? And that they that they worship what they worship is nature, not not God. And so I think it's just hard to. And if you ask an environmentalist, do I worship nature? No. Do I revere nature? Yeah, I think it's a pretty good thing, and I protect it. But, but again, it's um, the true groups don't talk to each other. Uh, some of the conservative Protestant groups said they would never work with a secular organization. 
it just that would that would be the death knell for the for the religious organization. So what do you think is going to happen? I don't know if you've you know, you said you stopped collecting data in 2009. Um, have you continued to follow it? I mean, where do you think this is going to go? Do you have any idea or any, I don't know, inkling? Um, I did follow. I mean, I before the before the book came out, I had to like check up and see who was who was still alive and who yeah. died. And you know, there was a small bit of attrition. Um, I think I think the nature of the organizations, right? That these are religious social movements, and the emphasis is on religion. Mm-hmm. So they're just they're not actually all that interested in. Changing the world in the way that maybe we often think of social movements as right. Mm-hmm. So they have a they're really focused first and foremost on living their lives as helping people live fully religious lives, and so that um, they also because they work so kind of locally, um, it limits how how much they can do. Right. The, um, you also have these real barriers towards cooperation across religious groups, right? Mm-hmm. So even if you were, you know, we want to solve climate change, but damn it, I'm never going to work with those Catholics because they're not Christian. <laughs> you, you know, you have those kinds of barriers, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that I think it effectively limits kind of um, the collective action potential of uh, of the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you know, I think the secular environmental movement, um, you know, for years when they would basically, uh, in fact, it was called the, the religious people call it the the collar problem, um, a reference to the cler- clerical collar that priests or ministers might wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, so for too many, too often, the secular groups, the uh, Greenpeaces and Sierra Clubs of the world would try to get a religious person or religious group to show up at a rally or an event. Um, and only just so they could say, look, the religions are behind us. <laughs> so they felt like they were being used. And so they were very wary of, of, of working with them okay. for fear of being co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, some of the groups, the more conservative groups, simply aren't going to work with the secular environmental movement. So in that sense, I think it might kind of revitalize religion in a certain way and do a, some tremendous work locally, but I'm not sure it's going to change the, the, the larger movement. It's a like, I think it's a, probably a bit like the um, environmental justice movement, right? which was this kind of, you know, it, it does get co-op, you know, brought into the mainstream movement, and yet it's not, um, it didn't really fundamentally change kind of the environmental movement, you know, uh, in the U.S., right? So I, you know, and, and, and again, the environmental justice movement started and often continues to be rooted in very local environmental and political issues, right? The siting of a toxic waste incinerator in some neighborhood or you know, like Flint, right? The water problem. Um, and once we solve that problem, then often the environmental justice movement kind of goes away and then it kind of goes into abeyance and then may pop up again when another environmental issue 
arises. So I think that's probably where the religious group is going to, more similar to that, they're going to have that kind of, we'll have local impact, we'll kind of go into abeyance. Um, again, part of it is resources. You just don't have the resources uh, to keep going. Um, and in the book, I talk about the ways in which they're so tightly embedded in particular religious audiences and religious belief systems and religious networks that it constrains kind of what they can do. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So if we have time, I just have one last question for you. Um, so we've talked a lot about obviously religion and environmentalism, but one of the things I really like about this book is it's also a story about social movements. And so I wonder if we could just wrap up, um, if you would say a little bit about maybe how this has changed your understanding of social movements or just how small groups of people mobilize. Sure. Um, so one of the things I loved about this project is that they just didn't fit the literature very well. Didn't, they don't look like, uh, you know, resources aren't important, right? I had a group in Appalachia, um, $8,000 a year budget. They man somehow managed to stop the Kentucky State Legislature from authorizing a bill to keep lopping off mountaintops. That's pretty important, right? But th they didn't need huge resources to get that done. Um, um, they don't they don't follow a political process model. Um, they're not really politically engaged. They're they don't they're not really involved with the state. Um, so so it was a it's a makes me th maybe think, well, where are we at? That is, what do we do with these kinds of movements that it's not really a new social movement. It's not really about identity politics. It's not a classic social movement. How do we make sense of this? Right. Um, and so um, I think one of the things that I tried to do is show how um, borrowing this notion of embeddedness from economic sociology, how, how if we understand the ways in which um, social movement organizations and their actors are embedded or connected to other organizations, either within the social movement field or outside of the social movement field, how they're embedded in kind of meaning systems, culture, religious culture, um, and how they're embedded to both real and imaginary audiences. That was one of the biggest things that I think popped up um, and I, as I was uh, writing the book. It's just how sensitive all the activists were to how their efforts to mobilize, to raise consciousness about the environment to religious groups, that is how worried they were about how this will play with the audience. So they would imagine, well, if I say it this way, if I, if we construct a program this way, who's going to be mad at me? <laughs> who's going to not <laughs> So lots of eggshells, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, really, but it was really being very, very attentive to the role audiences play. And one of the things that social movement theory hasn't done is actually paid much attention to audiences, not only just like potential participants of a movement, but the wider audience that weighs in on kind of social movement uh, political activity. So, um, so there, it's a religious movement, right? And they just, we don't have, um, they've been relatively ignored in the literature, right? There's like, move, religious groups are often seen as movement midwives, like when you think about the civil rights movement, all the churches and religious groups um, that provided resources for 
the civil rights movement, um, but rather than seeing the, the religion as a movement in and of itself. Uh, apart from Chris Smith and uh, some folks in Indiana that study different um, uh, kind of global religious movements, um, there hasn't been much written about religious movements, and religious movements don't seem to fit neatly into any of these categories. And so I think one of the things that um, would be nice to see is um, more work done um, to kind of theorize how religious movements kind of emerge and operate in, in contradistinction to secular movements. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for stopping by Office Hours. You're welcome. Happy to do so. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Stephen Ellingson speaking about his new book, To Care for Creation, The Emergence of the Religious Environmental Movement, which is available now from the University of Chicago Press. It was hosted by Katie Taborda-Witt and produced by Matt Gunther from the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more podcasts and plenty of great written work on our website, thesocietypages.org.